Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, then we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses Podcast. folks, this is the Gamers with Glasses show, and I'm Christian Haynes, one of the editors of the website GamersWithGlasses.com. Today I'm joined by Don Everhart. Hello. Nate Schmidt. Hi there. And Roger Whitson. Good day. <laughs> this week our special topic is deck building games. We'll try to figure out why games like Slay the Spire are so popular and what they bring to video games as a medium. But first, why don't we talk about the games we're playing right now? Roger, why don't you tell us or try to convince us that Demon Souls Remastered is anything other than a masochistic experience uh, that's even worse than the gym? It's definitely a masochistic experience. And I like the gym, but I'm a masochist. So it's kind of like I'm all about that. Um, I would say... Okay, so this is interesting. It's such a funny kind of experience that I've like my relationship to this game, right? Because like I played all of the original Dark Souls games. So one, two, and three. Um, I've played Sekiro. I've played Bloodborne. So like uh, all of the newer games I've played multiple times, right? So I'm a huge fan of this series. Uh, I've written on it. I've been sort of obsessed with it. I even like write about it on my syllabi about like I'm all about the Dark Souls pedagogy People question what I mean by that, and I'm like, prepare to die. No, I don't really say that. But like, occasionally so, a ball just rolls and destroys one of your students. Yeah, I, uh, I, so, but I've never played Demon Souls. I never, you know, because that came out on PlayStation Three, and PlayStation Four did not have backwards capability, right? And so I, uh, what is it? Backwards? What is it called? Compatibility. Compatibility, right? So. When the PlayStation 5 came out, I was already mad because it was like, oh, we're going to do a remake, but just for the PlayStation 5, right? Um, I, it took me, when did the PlayStation 5 come out? Like November or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, November. Yeah, November so 2021 like, or 2020. 2020 you talked about I just it. Recently, yeah, you I'm said you're never going to buy a PS5 and then Christian said no, the no. Demon Souls remake. You said that on this show. Okay, so Nate, I what I said, Nate, play the I audio. was mad about it. I didn't say that I wouldn't buy it. Oh, I am. So <laughs> he lives in anger. I'm so. <laughs> yeah, like I'm fully aware of my addiction and like how I can't get away from the fact that Sony owns my soul. Like I know, I know that. I just hate it. So, so that's not enough for you to buy a PS3 to play it, right? I don't. Which know. would be easier. That's true. That's true. 
I just never Roger did. Dark Souls, an allegory. That, that would be logical and probably cheaper, but <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> so I'm playing this game, Demon Souls. I would say, like, I haven't gotten to a point where I have found, and Don probably be like, well, wait until blah, blah, blah comes up. I haven't gotten to a point yet that has matched the sheer uh, frustration I felt when playing Dark Souls 1. I have not gotten to that. And I don't know if it's, you know, some of this, I, people will say your first from software game is the one that you all will always remember kind of thing. And then the other ones are kind of secondary. So that might, it might be that. It might be that, you know, or it might be something else. There are some things that are truly weird and frustrating. So the the fact that you lose half your life when you go into spirit form is a little frustrating. Um, the use of uh, grass instead of an Estes flask, that's kind of crazy. Um, but it adds a different element to it. It's actually even more frustrating than uh, in Bloodborne you have. Uh, those consumables, what are they called? Like the blood vials, right? Um, so like it's even more, they're, they're less, I, I would say they're less grass or they're different kinds of grass and it's kind of annoying. Um, but the world tendency thing has to take the cake for how ridiculous it is. What so is world, that? I've heard that mentioned, but what is that? So world tendency, different things happen when you get to white world tendency or black world tendency. So like white world tendency is like, I guess the holiest. I don't really know what white or black refer to, but things are easier. Things give you less souls. Um, but you also have certain events that can only happen in white tendency. So one of these events, okay, is you go to uh, the second world and I'm blanking on the name, but anyway, World 2, I was in World 2-2, and it's this, uh, it's this underground... You're uh, in Stonefang Tunnel. Yeah, Stonefang Tunnel, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm, it's, I have white tendency, right? So white tendency means, like, I have, I have killed all of the bosses without dying as a, as a human. I've only died as a spirit, okay? So it's all white tendency... And I can only do this during white tendency. I'm supposed to go to the middle of Stonefang Tunnel, which includes this uh, massive pit that I can tell you I have died at probably 3,000 times. Like, I keep dying, right? Like, it's one of those little places <laughs> where you always remember because you've died 3,000 times there, and, right? And you say you haven't found a point of frustration in Demon's Souls yet. Oh, no. That's, you've only that's, died in this pit 3,000 times. That's nothing. That's not That's not Ornstein's <laughs> smile level of frustration yet, right? Like, like it's not like, I'm not going to play this game. I need to put it down. This is so frustrating. Anyway. So, like, I get to this tunnel, right? And I'm supposed to, like, show off one of my swords to get a special ore, like the Greystone ore. Uh, but I get distracted by the stupid crystal lizards. I go running after the lizards. And, oh, I've slashed this guy that I'm supposed to meet. He's an NPC. I slashed him once or twice, and suddenly he's throwing fireballs at me. I got to kill him, right? I can't take that. I can't take some guy throwing <laughs> fireballs at me. So I do. <laughs> and now I can't get this ore. I didn't like I can't upgrade my sword. Well, not to its its maximum level and the only other option available to you is 
a hellacious grind, which they did nerf for the remake. Uh, it is what I understand is that it's still awful to go down into the bowels of of two two into all of these uh, tunnels that sandworms. Like they were yeah shaped by these sandworms and. It's just a totally miserable, disorienting experience. Uh, sometimes you walk out into lava fields. Um, very, very, you know, unpleasant area to be in. And you can grind down there and keep reloading over and over on the off chance that you'll get a drop of pure bladestone. But and the drop rare. rates are higher on PS5 than they were on PS3. And I did grind on PS3 for them, and it sucked. So if you really want it, it's just like the Jimmy Cliff song. You can get it if you really want. Why do people play this game? It's amazing, Christian. <laughs> Why do people, like, get into BDSM, man? Like... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, like some people like Dark Souls is a little more bag. boring than that, but maybe it's not your bag. Maybe this is just not I your feel thing. Like BDSM, I, I can understand. <laughs> no, no, um, Demon Souls. But I would it say it looks amazing. Yeah, I would say one thing that I would say is the um, the way that like they've improved the graphics and uh, the sound quality, and um, there's a lot of really sort of it's almost minor, but like. The, the effect of the souls as you absorb them is just really kind of fascinating in this one that you didn't get in any of the old Dark Souls games, right? Um, and then also just like the, you really feel, the weapons feel even more real in this one. And I think part of that is based on the sounds that they make, the um, the way that they play with the, the weight of them. Um, I really, and I really enjoy, I don't know how it was on the original, um, on the original Demon Souls, but like when you, when you parry somebody in this one, uh, you stick them and then you like slam them to the ground. And there's a certain visceral quality to that. That's quite pleasurable. It depends on the weapon. Uh, okay. okay. As it does in, in most right, Souls right, games, right. the parry animation and backstab differs depending on what you've got. But you're doing strength, just, right? Yeah, I'm doing strength. So I, I, I just enjoyed. I just felt like they really added to kind of the visceral quality of the game, which is part of my favorite things about about I also, all of the Soulsborne games. I mean, I also think that without taking anything away from From Software's uh, design ethos and their, you know, really interesting design uh, philosophy. This is also a result of Bluepoint being much better technically than From Software will probably ever be. Just bluntly, like Bluepoint is that good. There's a reason why it seems like PlayStation's about to buy them. Um, although maybe that deal fell through. Uh, but I mean, even just like looking at this Demon Souls remaster compared to Elden Ring, like. Elden Ring, if if you care a lot about the graphical one, which I don't think is why people play dark souls or demon souls but if that's the thing you care about you're going to end up being disappointed with elden ring because it's going to not look as good as 
Demon Souls Remastered, at least taking any chance you can to take a shot at from software. Elden Ring is the actually the game that I'm excited about in January. I mean, like that game looks great. There's a pothead, you know. It looks great, but it doesn't look great. Yeah, it looks looks great in terms of mechanics. It, but you the haters. thing that people complained about was cool. What's that? <laughs> Dark Souls with a horse. Exactly. But but is it Dark Souls with horse armor? Are it's we... Dark Souls with a horse and maybe not as heavily gated. So one that thing for that me I heard, is the trick. I forget the name of this, but apparently some people online are are are. Uh, hinting that or they're they're speculating that the horse is based off of the horse from princess mononoke and that's all i needed to love oh this like game. you weren't gonna get but it the anyway. horse in princess mononoke is an elk <laughs> right yeah it's like yeah, yeah but it cool. jumps and shit oh yeah it does that's the same true. kind of jumping that'd yeah. be cool that'd all be cool. i know is i'm gonna wait for reviews and if what i hear is that you have the ability to sidestep bosses pretty easily uh much more so even than like dark souls then I'm going to buy it. And you can it. sidestep most bosses. I mean, you can't you sidestep every You cannot sidestep boss. most bosses. You can sidestep some <laughs> bosses. I think you haven't played much of the game then, Christian, if you don't know that you can sidestep a lot of the bosses. <laughs> I'm talking about in a way in which you can actually expect to get through the end game and not hit a wall at the end of Dark Souls 1, because from what I understand, the end game of Dark Souls 1 actually requires you to be either pretty damn good or have actually gone through a lot of the rest of the game. Yeah, I mean, you need the, like, whatever the Lord Souls, but that's just, like... Oh, so you need things that you play, get by playing the game and not just avoiding the bosses. You mean there are Dark a lot Souls of bosses actually that you is hard. I will say my avoid. biggest pet peeve is Dark Souls fans trying to tell non-Dark Souls fans that the game's not hard. Yeah. They just well, haven't oh, yeah, that's got it yet. But You're if, just not in a meditative state. You just if, haven't learned the patterns. If I These are all things right. I've seen on the internet a lot, including from some actually pretty good journalists. Yeah, I think that that's ridiculous. Yeah. If I remember, I mean, right, who plays a lot it? of the skips are uh, like humanity based anyway, like the one in the fire world or whatever. Um, and if you're not playing online, that makes them basically inaccessible to you. Yeah, and I don't like, play online to be. Yeah, fair. the skips are only available if you're willing to also put yourself through playing online and having other people show up and kick your ass all yeah, the time. Which I absolutely will never do. I'm, in fact, I'm, and I know this is probably going to get some hate from Dom, which I'm completely okay with. I am going to play Deathloop offline because it's available. <laughs> I, um, I don't hate that idea, but I am intrigued by it. I don't want anybody invading my game. I hate the idea of invasion. I have so little control over my own life. You know, yeah, I don't games. like I like it a little bit, but not a lot, you know, because sometimes it's just hilarious because it's and aggravating and funny. Like if you're like you do this amazing thing and then this guy just warps in and kills you and it's like, uh, <laughs> I love that. That's part of the awesomeness of the game. For my me, my favorite innovation that from did for Dark Souls three and only three so far is uh, they had purple phantoms. And it was the most fantastic idea. Oh, yeah, right. For our games, you had your yellow and your white and your blue phantoms, which are indistinguishable in many ways because, you know, in in multiplayer, all they do is protect the player that summoned them. 
you can't hurt the player if you're one of them. And then you have red, which is there to, to kill you, right? Uh, only in three could you be purple, which A, superior color, uh, straight up, uh, and B, you had the option to be naughty or nice to the player at your discretion. Uh, and the player that summoned you could never trust you completely. You could go and walk them through and, and kill baddies for them and even kill red fandoms for them. Someone else invades the game and you go, not today. I'm protecting uh, this, you know, this player. This is awesome. And then you stab the player in the back. <laughs> and it is glorious. It was this a is wonderful why. decision. This and is why I play offline. I, it was just completely <laughs> elides that dynamic of okay, I'm gonna summon all these, you know, I'm gonna touch every white stone that appears in front of me and get my bully squad set up, and then if any of those nasty red phantoms shows up, well, it'll be a four on one and you know, we'll show them or whatever, right? Well, I summon a purple one. Walk on the wild side. Yeah. I remember one of my favorite moments in Dark Souls 3. I just really love it when you get summoned to these worlds and you don't really know what's going on because, like, the people are really weird. Like, there's this one guy who made himself somehow with, I think, I don't remember what the what what armor set he used, but he used some armor set that made himself look just like Jesus. And he was he was, like, doing weird, like, faith like healing and I, I i was i was totally mesmerized by this guy and then somebody stabbed me in the back and i died and i was like what the hell just happened i lost I jesus like that <laughs> i got okay. stabbed when i was going to meet the lord oh no it's so speaking of asynchronous multiplayer i'm gonna hijack uh our souls chat to talk about Death Stranding. Can we talk about Death Stranding? Let's talk about Death Stranding, which would just be a game uh, which would be so much less if it weren't for all of the uh, asynchronous elements in it, um, which were inspired in large part by Demon Souls, uh, but purely cooperative. So Christian, this, this is a game where- I love might... the highway building. There I played. Go. I played most of Death Stranding. Not all. I didn't finish it, but I love the highway building. Not finishing it is probably for the best because the last chapters are by far the rockiest and longest ones to sit through, and that's mostly what they consist of. You you sit through them. Um, the middle of the game, where you're going from say about chapter three to eight, fantastic stuff. Because uh, you're you're building these highways and other people can ship in materials to build them uh zip lines and boxes where you can give away items to other players or withdraw things that other players have dropped in there's a dedicated button on the controller that you can tap to make norman reedus you're playing as uh, norman reedus in a post-apocalyptic delivery simulation where everything has <laughs> gone wrong in the world and rain ages people uh, and there's... No, you're playing as Sam Porter Bridges. You're playing as Norman Reedus with his funky fetus. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that is the title of Death Stranding. Uh, oh my god, if that was the title. title, that would be so much better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is It is a spectacularly campy game. Um, oh and uh, more so even than other Hideo Kojima games. Uh, and he is 
very campy, uh, and oftentimes very purposefully so, which kind of actually ruins the camp element, right? If you're intentionally being campy, you're kind of sucking out the, the enjoyment of putting something out there and playing it completely straight and then failing spectacularly over and over again as you put on this very serious face. Uh, and Death Stranding is better camp, I will contend, than anything that Kojima has ever previously made because I think he actually thinks that all of the science fiction nonsense and jargon that he throws into the game, I think he's, he's earnest about it. I think he genuinely thinks that he made a very serious video game for a change with some jokes. You know, it's not serious all the time. There's room for some humor in here and Conan O'Brien cameos. Uh, but I think he, he, he thinks that this is like a real serious, the blockbuster sci-fi motion capture pinnacle of video games and what it amounts to on a moment by moment basis is me pedaling along as norman reedus with 500 packages strapped to his body flailing as i trip over a rock i didn't see into a mountain stream, the packages fly everywhere in every direction. They start floating downstream. Redis is paddling on his back because apparently, you know, he's just weighted down by all of the freight so he can't turn over. So he's this turtle who looks like Daryl Dixon from The Walking Dead because it is Daryl Dixon from The Walking Dead. Uh, I mean, Sam Porter Bridges. I mean, Norman Reedus. Uh, and his funky fetus. And, and, his, and, and he has this uh, baby strapped yes. to his chest. Because um, let's not forget, it is a baby that senses danger. A baby that oh. senses danger and allows oh, so you, you to can't see beat into the, in the dead things that hang from the sky and try to pull Norman Reedus down bodily to to the the world of the dead where he can casually return from by the way so there's not any real that's his thing that's his thing he's a guy who can go back and forth so it's actually it's almost like he's a bridge between worlds it's almost like he's a bridge between worlds and then they say that relentlessly uh and every character has these very straightforward names uh there's dead man uh, who is played by a composite of multiple people, including Guillermo del Toro, who lent his image for it. Um, and he uh, is a character who's made up of body parts of, of dead people. Dead man. There's Heart Man, played in part as a composite by director Nicholas Winding Refn. Uh, you'll never guess this. Heart Man has regular cardiac arrests. No. 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 <laughs> Sam Porter Bridges is a bridge between they they all do this and it's a Brilliant. complete disaster as far as every like the game just insists like no this is serious everyone whose names are barely the barest veneer of metaphor it's actually there's some deep symbolic passion burning under them there is no there is nothing it is it is the <laughs> it is a pebble deep puddle uh this game that loves to think that it's a deep deep ocean and it presents itself as such at every opportunity and it's the better for it because it's it's just so fun in its failure and then your failures as the player to maneuver this facsimile 
of Norman Reedus around this landscape. And it just jives so well together that Kojima was failing to tell this story and you're failing in your deliveries in this landscape and everything is just going wrong for you. Uh, and for this guy who, who thinks that he's a video game auteur and a, a director par excellence. And maybe he is because, you know, largely, I think the game's great. But that's the thing. It's like the game is great at those moments where like the directorial vision kind of gets let go a bit and you're just mm-hmm. walking and like you hit a cliff and then a song by Low Roar comes on. <laughs> and like there there are moments where that works so well. And then there are like 20 minute cutscenes with like long pauses to make sure you're getting the thing that is essentially like so direct that it's a bit like getting hit in the knees with a baseball bat, you know? The game is convinced that it has twists and it plays those twists to the hilt and to the death of the game. The final chapters are convinced that they're revealing big things that the game only hinted at before. And the game has literally told you these things just straight at the camera for 40 hours. It's not a twist, but the game is convinced. It's directed. All of these poor actors are directed as though they're conveying the shocking reveal. So on the on a very sort of similar <laughs> spectrum, I uh, played the recently released game 12 Minutes. Uh that came on Xbox Game Pass, which is how I accessed it. Um, I think it's also on PC. Uh, it's a Annapurna Interactive joint from uh, Luis Antonio. Um, and I don't know much about Luis Antonio. It's very much like a, this is the guy that made the game, although I actually think he made it with a team of developers. But he very much like had this kind of... Uh, a tour vision for it. And Does he, he was... also put his name on the game at every opportunity? Because Kojima, <laughs> it's not doesn't not the Kojima extent, but there's definitely some of if that. If there's an opportunity to put a title card with his name on on the game, it appears. Yeah. So this is, I mean, and this is guy got. He has an interesting pedigree. He did Rockstar Games, Ubisoft, and then he also helped Jonathan Blow develop The Witness, right? Like he was one of the artists for The Witness, and so he's got an interesting sort of pedigree, I guess. And it's definitely a game that's been presented as like this cinematic, artistic vision, emphasis maybe on the cinematic. It also pulled in three well-known actors: uh, James McAvoy, Daisy Ridley, uh, and Willem Dafoe. Um, it is, it's definitely contending for my worst game of the year. Award. Whoa. Um, it is, and I'll just say it's a bad game. And I actually, like, I would go so far as to say that, I, like, it is bad on a kind of, like, objective design level. Like, in other words, there are elements in this game where there are design contradictions, not the least of which is, like, one of the things this game helped reveal to me uh, a point I'm sure is obvious for other people. Um, point and click adventures were kind of like the first open world games in a lot of ways. And I think in a pretty, some pretty obvious ways that the very like ability to get stuck on a puzzle was sort of alleviated by the fact that you could move on to another interesting screen with a lot of great art. Um, and this is a point and click adventure fundamentally. 
set in three rooms uh, that are very rather bland looking uh, with dialogue that frankly is rather bland and sometimes overwrought with voice actors, well, actors who are clearly never in the same room as one another and are not voice actors, so are used to acting with their faces. In other words, they emote with their faces, and this game is top-down. So the premise of this game, right, is you're in a time loop. It's one of the many time loop games we've been graced with. Uh, 12 minutes is, you know, that's how long a time loop is. And... You're in a room with your wife. Uh, I won't say too much about what happens, but you, you know, it's a husband and wife who don't have names. They're just man and wife or something like that. Uh, and then the cop arrives and the cop accuses your wife of murder. Uh, and the game is spent sort of figuring out what goes on. And I will say to its credit, uh, because it's such a closed environment, you're just at your apartment. There are a bunch of different uh things that you can do and it has a little bit more of a logical sort of set of interactions with things right so like you can fill a cup up with water and that can actually become something you can use to advance the loop let's say and the goal of course is to break out of the loop ground day style you know or if you prefer uh what is that recent movie um spring uh i forget what the hulu movie that i actually quite liked with andy sandberg in any case palm springs um, yes thank you Highly recommend. Um, Do you ever like you ever wonder why these time loop narratives like are always about like breaking out of the time loop? Like, why not just why don't we really have a Nietzsche eternal return? I was just going to say, because <laughs> yeah. you're the Dark Souls guy, Roger. You just want us to be in the same loop over and over and over again. Forever. You're supposed to love the loop. That's Either the we point. light ourselves on fire <laughs> or we give well, ourselves the premise of yeah. Well, the premise of Death Loop, right, that's coming out from Arcane is that everybody wants to be in the loop basically but you. Everybody else is happy with it. And you're the yeah. spoiler, from what I understand. You're um, the special guy that has to break out of it. Yeah. No, everyone yeah. wants to break it out of the loop, and that's why they're in it. Yeah, exactly. So so I, I won't give away too <laughs> yeah, much about deep, this game. Deep. <laughs> Very deep. Undergrad <laughs> philosophy major deep. Um, sorry to you, the undergrad philosophy majors that may or may not be listening to this podcast. Um, My this past self just that, turned this off. <laughs> yeah, I know. We ruined it. Uh, there goes our half of our audience, probably. Uh, but this is a game that to be half decent really would have needed to nail the landing. And what I, w I won't say what the ending is, but let's just say, I don't think by any measure does it nail the landing. Um, there are some folks, in fact, that I think flat out find the ending offensive. I'm not one of those people. I have a very, I don't know. I have a tough stomach. Uh, there's also a lot of discussion about why this game without any content warnings uh, received really no blowback um, for some material that people might find objectionable or that might trigger them. Whereas uh, Boyfriend Dungeon from Kit Fox uh, did have a content warning, a set of content warnings, but got, in fact, a ton of blowback for not describing everything in a content that warning. That escalated well, to harassment. Yeah. yeah, it escalated death to death threats. And I think, you know, I have to say, I think that those developers were very well-intentioned and made a mistake and responded as well as one could to the mistake and did not deserve any kind of harassment as I think really nobody does. Um, I think this is an instance, instance that's sort of interesting because I actually think that if Boyfriend Dungeon had absolutely no content warning, there would have been no fuss made over it. 
And I think in a strange way, it's like as soon as you kind of like say, and I actually think the content warning is a good thing and I'm glad they're expanding it. Um, in a way, what happened with 12 Minutes is that it framed itself as a mature art game and in doing so exempted itself from certain kinds of things. And whether or not that should be the case, uh, it's a whole different set of questions, but it's interesting to see the way in which these things circulate. I also think that a year from now, there's going to be a general consensus that 12 Minutes is just a bad game. Uh, I think there's some people that are hot on it right now, and I think that's going to fizzle. And I think people are just kind of kind of look at it as like a weird retrograde attempt to kind of like make games art when, you know. It's, it's a prestige game. It's um, a prestige game, yeah. Yeah, in, in the same way as prestige television has uh, a lot of sizzle, I think, when it lands. And it, I, I will also say uh, I'm not surprised to, to hear your opinion on it. And it is similar, I think, already to opinions from several other critics um, yeah. who, who have spoiled the exists. ending for me, which isn't really a spoiler because I didn't yeah. really intend to play it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad it exists. I don't find it offensive. I, find, you know, I can't understand how somebody would. I'm glad somebody took a risk. I'm glad somebody experimented with this. I'm glad Annapurna supports things that are weird. Um, I'm glad this formal experiment exists because I like experiments with the form of video games. And it doesn't work very well. And somebody needed to get a better writer in the room, frankly. And actually get voice actors in the same room as one another or who had a lot of like a really good rapport with one another because those weird pauses that are clearly like a result of things being sort of copied and pasted together or spliced together just kind of ruin the emotive value. Um, it just falls flat. But on a very positive note, I'm going to be writing impressions up for the website on another game. Um, from Digix Art, I believe, or yeah, I don't know how else to pronounce it. Uh, a game called Road 96, um, which I think is a great game. Uh, the first line of my impressions on it are going to be uh, talking about politics is awkward um, because there's this repeated thing the game has where NPCs ask you, are you political? <laughs> it gives you different possible responses and it's like so awkward but i think it's awkward because we're not always used to talking about politics in a video game and even if game has politics we're not used to a game asking us to literally have conversations about politics within the game um and that's what this game is doing you're in a country with a right-wing populist leader that in some ways resembles the u.s but in other ways resembles um I would say Eastern European uh, scenarios um, and, um, you know, places like Belarus in particular at the moment, um, Poland right now for that matter, uh, Hungary in particular. Uh, but in any case, uh, it's a road trip, except your road trip is to get out of the country. You're trying to migrate out of the country. There is a police force hunting down teenagers because you're te a series of teenagers in this game, right? So you're not just this one character, a series of characters. There's a little bit of a roguelike dimension to it. Um, you can fail to cross the border and then you get another teen. And basically time is ticking down to the next election. Um, and there's a sort of like liberal sort of democratic candidate who's trying to fight the right wing populace for the office and questions about the, whether or not the election will be legitimate. 
all that. Uh, but it's interesting because basically you have three decisions every time with anything, which is you can be like, eh, I'm not really interested in politics. You can say, like, let's burn the system down. We need a revolution. Or you can be like, yes, let's vote for the, you know, let's vote for Hillary Clinton, basically. Um, and it does not give you any option to support the right-wing dictator. You, you, this is very much a game with a political perspective, and it doesn't make any bones about that. But it does allow you to kind of, like, trip over yourself and think through these problems, and you have these conversations that are interesting. Um it's got a great art style that harks back to like, I would say PS1, PS2, like maybe early PS2 era, um, kind of lo-fi polygon, uh, in a great soundtrack where like there are seven NPCs who recur and each of them has a dedicated soundtrack from a different artist, which is like, just sets the tone immediately. Like you go and you get to know these characters and you're like, oh, I want another encounter with this character, right? Like I really want this. And there's maybe a couple that fall flat. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the like Fox News anchor basically uh, that repeats, though I think she's, it's kind of a funny send up of that kind of uh, figure. Uh, but there's like a trucker who's amazing, you know, and I love his soundtrack and like, you know, it's easy to hitchhike yeah. with him. And it so gives it's your a, characters themes. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, it's a great, like very solid game, very well scoped, doesn't try to bite off more than can chew, talks about politics in a lovely, awkward manner that makes no bones about like, hey, we need to talk about these things. So yeah, highly recommend uh, be writing up some impressions uh very soon and so it was nice to have a narrative game that is good maybe some other time i'll also talk about uh the follow-up uh by the people that made virginia um last stop which is eh. but okay all right uh Don and Nate, you guys have been playing Psychonauts, or as I wrote in the chat, Psychonuts. Psychonuts, thank you. <laughs> I can finally laugh about Psychonuts. I have been holding in my joy about Christian spelling it Psychonuts for like, I don't know, 20 minutes listening to you guys talk about uh, shit I've never heard of. But oh my it's god. It's actually a game about a squirrel grappling with mental health problems. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Conqueror's Bad Fur Day. Oh! <gasps> It's Conker's Bad Fur Day. Oh, man. There are some commonalities there. That's a game and a half. Uh, I don't know, Don, do you like it? Like, I I feel like um, I am reliving something that from my teenagehood that I never actually lived. Uh, I didn't play it at the time because my friends only had uh, were the only people I knew who had playstation so i only played multiplayer games on playstation uh because i you know go to other people's houses and and play and i didn't play it on pc because we didn't have a pc that could run it either so i missed it the first time around and i'm presuming like you i'm playing it because the sequel is coming out relatively shortly but i have really you know i've there there are some issues there are some age related issues i think but by and large i've really had a lot of smiles a lot of sort of joy in playing something that makes me feel 
the way that I felt that kind of the first time I was discovering like 3D uh, gaming moving on from Tetris. Tetris was the first video game I got really into, and and then the world kind of got bigger after that. And I feel like Psychonauts <laughs> would have been a huge, huge part of that if I would have, have known about it or had access to it then. And so, it, I don't know, it makes me smile now in that regard anyway. Sim- I, I, I have a similar situation. Um, I remember uh, I was in high school, and I had some friends who hacked an Xbox and they downloaded a copy of Psychonauts and they were adamant that I would love this game if I were to play it. But I did not have that. It was at, it was at their place, you know? Right. Uh, so it was like, thanks for the recommendation for this game, but, you know, you don't really want me occupying your couch and, and playing eight to ten hours of this platformer uh, just just that you've already just played. Yeah, uh, Just <laughs> exactly. for me to have the experience. Um, and then later, uh, got a version of it in, I think, a Humble Bundle uh, or something like that. Tried to play it. Didn't run very well. Thought, well, you know, it, it'll, it'll be in my Steam library. I'll boot it up another time. A uh, decade later, I'm like, okay, surely uh, now my computer will be able to run this right. game. Right. Um, the amount of work that I've had to put in the steam version of this on mac to get it to work it's abominable oh this sorry has man to you be... bought a mac i mean i don't i yeah. don't know what else to tell you <laughs> what yeah what, what you're pl- trying to play a video game on a mac you're a madman uh this you know it's a it's an official port you're not i although i, I mean it is it's it's just absurd what uh I, i've currently had to do to get this thing to to work and maybe it's actually made me more forgiving to some of its dated platforming elements because my the the amount of dexterity and gymnastics and camera control that I need to do just to be able to play the game through the editing of the config file and everything else that I've needed to do to even get it to work, that might be making me a little more forgiving because I just expect it to be terrible. I expect the camera to be terrible. I expect the movement to be imprecise and awful because I am apparently unable to play it any other way. You're just happy the ship isn't sinking. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that I'm most of the way through this game and that somehow I've managed to play to just grit my teeth and struggle through it because the writing is it's really pretty great. Uh, the, the the writing is fantastic. The voice acting is pretty fantastic, and the one-liners that the NPCs get—I mean, not even the main characters in the game. Their dialogue and and the story dialogue—it's pretty good, but it's very jokey on purpose, um, and very slapstick in in a way that I enjoy. But it isn't quite as good as just the little bits that random bystanders will say to you when you're inside of someone else's head the single sentence lines have so much zing to them uh it's a true highlight yeah and just obviously this is the thing that everybody i think talks about with the game but the whole premise of not just putting you inside someone's psyche but using that as an opportunity to build creative platform physics 
that really it has me excited for seeing what they're going to do in the sequel like how they're going to continue to build on that with some of the more advanced capabilities uh, system capabilities that they're working with now uh, but i've yeah it's it's made me smile i've enjoyed it um I also I, I want to talk about the one other game that I've been playing just because it's a game from a smaller indie publisher and I don't want this to be the Gamers with Glasses AAA or AA cast. Um, but uh, come uh, on, Double I'm, Fine is obviously indie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been playing I've been playing Dwarf Romantic, which is by Tucana Interactive, and I think it's actually still in early access, but it works really. I mean. Maybe I didn't play it long enough, but I haven't really encountered uh, any meaningful glitches or bugs in it. And it's just a really pretty and relaxing and nice game to just sit down and almost like the... Although all single player games are technically solitaire, like the word solitaire keeps coming to my mind a lot because it's like a solitaire tile building game. Like... This is going to sound like That's a disc. That's right on theme. It's it is, so right? Close. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it, this is going to sound like a disc, but it's not. It reminds me of, again, years and years and years ago, one of the things that I really liked to do when we had this cheap old computer that ran Windows uh, 3.1 was um, play solitaire, those solitaire Mahjong games where you had to match the tiles and the tower would slowly come apart. And oh, yeah. playing Dorf Romantic where you're you're pulling these tiles and you're setting them. So sort of like the board games like Carcassonne and some other sort of German style tile tile based world building games of that ilk. You're making little fields and little farms and forests. And as you build these things, you get some goals for how big your forest is supposed to be. But if the forest goes too far, it's going to get in the way of the railroad. And you have a railroad goal that you're trying to make. So you've got to make sure that you set those pieces going in the right direction relative to the forest. It's got just enough um, dynamics to it like every once in a while you'll build your forest and then like you'll see little deer walking through your forest all of a sudden and there's a boat and when when you build the river the boat appears on it it's i don't know it's the way that when i played games like carcassonne i kind of imagine it and somebody took my little imagination of those games and made a fun cool solitaire experience out of it which at the end of a long and where I am very, very hot uh, day, the, it's perfect for just like 45 minutes to sit and relax and let the cares of the day kind of wash over you. Can't recommend it enough. It's like the best $8 I've spent this year. I think that phrase just enough actually really speaks to what some of the best deck building games. And I'm thinking in particular of deck building games that are single player or if they're multiplayer they're not multiplayer in the way that say hearthstone is um but these really kind of like dedicated single player experiences were you know to state the uh elephant in the room a game like slay the spire uh that is you know has just enough cards and just enough characters and just enough mechanics um that it's complex but also that you can get into it relatively fast and 
you know, you can keep coming back to it and you can play it on a, like a hot summer day where you just really don't feel like learning something else because even though you've played for 200 hours already, it keeps pulling you back. Roger, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you came to Slay the Spire and you've written oh my a little bit for the site. Yeah, yeah, I don't... I don't what draws you to it, you know? Playing. I don't know. I have no idea. Like, it's so funny. I played... Uh, so I, what you just said, Christian, really sort of resonates particularly with my experience with that game. Um, and also, I think, I think in some ways speaks to, like, I can talk about the second game I was, I, I listed uh, nowhere profit, but I don't, it's like, I don't, I haven't had enough time with it in a way. I feel like there are two temp, two kind of temporalities with these games, right? One is like, you know, you have 45 minutes to do something, you do a run of it and you're done. Right. And that works. Then like after a while there, but there's these longer sort of longer temporalities of like weeks and months where you start to figure out the mechanics of the game. Um, you start to figure out what are the combinations that, that can help you get through the game um, in the best way possible. And it's almost like you can't, I mean, you can always like see what people say. Like, you know, there's a lot of writing online. There's a really good Reddit, um, uh, forum on, uh, Slay the Spire. Um, you can do that, but like, I don't know that that's really the same kind of pleasure of like discovering a kind of combination, um, that works really well. So like give, to give you an example, um, and y'all probably know Slay the Spire. You're basically, it's a really simple game. You play like, a I forget all the different characters, the uh, but there's like a sort of there's sort of a fighter character. Do you, Don? You're usually good at this stuff. Who, do you remember the character names? I have not played. Oh, okay, Slay the Spire. okay, okay. <laughs> so there's like a there's like a there's the silent. I remember the silent. The silent's like this like thief character. Um, yeah, there's like a uh, a kind of a robot, which I always considered to be like kind of a a wizard like character named, uh, what are they called? I should look this up. Shouldn't I? Um, anyway, robot wizard, they have the whiz, whizbot 5,000, the the, the floating orbs, it has these floating orbs on it. Um, and then there's a, there's a sort of monk like character that was, a that was, uh, given in an update, um, who's really interesting too. And they all work really differently. Um, and what you think is going to be their, the sort of best build that you can get with these characters ends up not being the case that, that ends up not being the case. So like the silent obviously seems like it would be, um, seems like it would be poison, right? Like that you would just get a whole bunch of poison cards and poison things to death. And you can do that. Um, but I would say like the most, the most interesting one that I found was actually shivs. You can get like, you know, cards that will like give your shivs extra. Uh, it will basically shivs start out with a single card that gives you like either gives you one shiv per turn or gives you like three shivs and they do like one, a base of like one damage each. Right. Um, but you can, you can get uh, artifacts that up your shiv, uh, the damage you do on your shiv. You can get um, cards that can like uh, multiply the number of shivs that you get with different 
with different cards. You can, um, you know, there are all sorts of different ways that you can magnify this to the point where you get you get so powerful at some points that you're just shiving boss characters to death. Like, and they, they can't do anything, right? And so like, that's really like discovering something like that, right? Some Some kind of mechanism within the cards for me is like how what really opens up these games and the, and the fact that it takes, it both takes a long time to do that. So you have this kind of long game, but individual runs don't take up too much of your time. That's how it's fundamentally different than like dark souls where it's so immersive and like, you really have to dedicate yourself to it. Um, I was, it was so funny. I was starting demon souls. I will say this really briefly and no one will respond to it because let's not go down that path again. But like, I was kind of like, I don't know that I have the brain for this anymore. Like, can I do this? Like, can I get into this? Because it's like staring at trying to read Moby Dick again or something like that, where you're like, do I really want this giant piece of chocolate cake that's in front of me? Or can I just like, and, and uh, deck builders are exactly the opposite. There is a, there's a depth to them, but it's a, but it's a depth that, you know, takes multiple playthroughs and you don't have to do it all at the same time. So I think, you know, one of the things that helps with that, because, you know, if you were to describe it that way, Roger, and not add a couple elements, you could think of it as like, okay, you just have to figure the game out. Right. But the reason why it's not just that is because there are always elements of chance that are introduced. A lot of these games are roguelike. So, you know, you have your run and slay the spire trying to ascend a tower and you're pretty hard boss battles that kind of gatekeep from one level to the next um and i think this goes back to like just the heydays and you know ongoing presence of like ccgs like magic gathering you know where you have that double level of chance of like buying your cards and like are you gonna get the cards you want which is also a question to slay the spire like you can have a kind of a shit run and slay the spire that's largely just not getting the cards you need or you know you thought you were going to be doing a you know, a silent run that was going to be based on like drawing a bunch from your deck, but you're not getting the cards you need to, for that particular thing. So you have to shift focus to a shiv or a poison build or something, right? To a different build, in other words. And, uh, you know, likewise with magic, you're also just the shuffle of the deck. So there's the shuffle of the deck, there's the which cards are you going to get in the first place. And, you know, I, for me, I started playing those games like, uh, I want to say I started playing them in 1993. Five, uh, you know, Magic the Gathering. I want to say I got in. It wasn't Tempest. It was a couple sets before Tempest, which I think was probably a while ago in the expansion set uh, history of Magic, which seems to be a little dense at the moment. Um, and there was something about like opening a booster pack and like drawing a card, and then you know, you get that one rare card, and you're thinking about the deck you're going to try to build with it and nate i know you do you still play magic i do i do i do still play physical magic i but that's something that i was kind of wondering about as you were describing this because i don't really play uh i want to say computer but i know that's not the only platform they're on but i don't really play digital computer computer games i don't play computer (laughs) games i don't really play digital digitized deck builders and so that's something i wonder about is sort of like the early rpg games like zork does a deck builder is the appeal of a deck builder that it obviates the need for a human opponent like is that 
part of it is that deck builders work solid like to me just because i i like physical magic but i also really like other big complicated tabletop games i look at a game like slay the spire and i think hmm that looks like a computerized version of what could be a really satisfying tabletop experience so i i just i wonder if that's part of the appeal because it just seems to me like there's something a little bit less fun about the random draw that's generated by the machine versus the random draw that's analog and i don't know that could just be some old school like well i have harvest on vinyl kind of shit but uh i and i've only ever listened to it on vinyl but but like i i <laughs> <laughs> i don't know like do you, having anybody having experience with both like have thoughts on that Sounds like you're a Luddite, Nate. I am! <laughs> I mean, I we am. knew this already. Let's, let's be honest. I, I, my experience with the deck builders is that they're completely different than CCGs. Yeah, uh, I, I think I, ultimately. I used to play Magic a very long time ago as a kid. Uh, as a nerdy little kid hanging out at the local RPG shop that very generously had a space in back where you could play the games that you spent all of that money buying booster packs uh on and <laughs> just I, like the generous you know heroin yeah, dealer has to right, place uh, in the back yeah, of his house and, and, and such right this, instead this is foam astroturf tables so that you you could play warhammer on them which i never did because talk about cost prohibitive whole oh, uh, or you could play it. you know magic the gathering or, or dungeons and dragons or Shadowrun or something right and it's it's been a long time since I I played games like that and was involved in tournaments and things like that, and now when we have this genre of video games called deck builders that incorporate random chance more or less, and a lot of them have these procedural roguelite or roguelike elements, and to me, from what I've played. They're closer to turn-based RPGs than they are CCGs. And it's it, and it's like you're taking a turn-based RPG system, like a Grandia or a Final Fantasy or something like that, and instead of having an action bar of who goes when and you have hit points and mana and everything else and you have all of these things you're juggling with in turn order and which your characters go and which of the enemies go and when and all that buffs debuffs etc etc all of those just get assigned cards with the interesting shuffling mechanics and the interesting ability to uh arrange your deck in advance and make some actions that you can perform more or less likely due to that shuffling of the deck. Um, and that takes the place of that kind of turn-based combat uh, in some ways. And it, in some games, this is more direct than others. Um, w- one of the ones, I, the, I think the main example I have in mind for that approach to deck builders is a game called Deep Sky Derelicts. Uh, and... It's, in many ways, a very mediocre game, Um, but uh, it has kind of a fun comic book aesthetic to it, science fiction, bare bones plot line of you getting sent out to salvage these long dead and dormant alien vessels and deal with the other scavengers on them and, and that kind of thing. 
And for the most part, that's what you do. You you go around the room. The arrangement of rooms is procedurally done, uh, generated inside of these ships. You get into encounters and you play the cards as you've arranged them. Different items that you equip give you different cards uh, in your deck. And really, some of the only stuff that is maybe distinctive about it as a deck builder compared to just being an RPG is that, is that you, depending on these items and the characters that you have, you get different sets of cards. The different cards have different synergies that can play off of one another. And you might want your deck to be larger or smaller. Uh, Smaller your deck, right? The more likely it is that you're going to draw something that's in the deck larger the deck the more options you have but the less likely it is that you're going to you know you're going to be really hoping that you draw that one card out when it's one in 80 compared to one in 25 yeah i think that there's a, there's a lot of good points there and i i think what's interesting is i actually think that what we're seeing now is we're seeing a lot of these deck building games actually like building on those rpg elements um some of them really well and some of them I would argue not so well. Um, I started, I'm not going to talk about it much, but I'm starting my second attempt at getting into Griftlands, which I know a lot of people uh, like, uh, and I bounced off of very hard when it was in early access, but now I'm trying the 1.0 release. Um, and part of it was just the onboarding. The onboarding is there's so much onboarding, and actually it's not done very well, frankly. The tutorialization is pretty bad in that game. Um but you keep having to learn all these different elements and you're managing two decks and it's really story heavy and you, you know, you're supposed to really care about the dialogue. And I just found myself being like, when do I get to the card battle? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> when do I get what I'm here, you know, for? Um, and so, and I do think there are some other games that do that better. Um, one of the games I'm playing right now uh, is a game called Black Book. Uh, which just came out, and I started playing it, I think, a week or two before it came out. I'm about halfway, I think, through it. It's from a Russian developer called Marteshka, and it's actually set uh, in like a kind of 19th century Russian uh, village. Uh, and you're playing like the village witch, essentially, who like helps everybody out. Uh, but you're also trying to retrieve your husband from hell, basically. Um, yeah, and it actually has a good story element, but it gets you into the card element really pretty quickly and you can kind of get back there as quickly as you want and part of what's interesting to me is that there is this like kind of 2.5d maybe more like 2.75d uh because it's like 3d but with a very foreshortened horizon not open world just little hub worlds where you end up encountering the demons you're going to battle but what's kind of cool is like if you poke around you can find ways that like affect the battle you're going to get into right and some of that will be just like finding herbs that you can brew into a potion that will then be like this healing potion that you have accessible during the battle or things like that and so there's a way in which like i think the reason that game works for me better than grisland's is because there's this kind of continuity or this really close enmeshment between the card game mechanics and the other mechanics and so you always feel like you're kind of contributing to the card game and it just gets you back in the card game quickly right but on the other hand i still feel like the ones that work the best are like slay the spire which like has some rpg elements but god it doesn't have a story monster train which i think is probably my favorite deck builder that's come out um 
uh, in the last four or five years is basically Slay the Spire, but with a tower defense mechanic uh, and a bunch of different clans. Has, I think it has significantly more cards probably than Slay the Spire as well, which can make it a little overwhelming. And you get those cards pretty fast. But it's like you are a group of monsters who for some reason are taking a train through hell and you have to fight a series of bosses and defend your pyre from them destroying it. Um, There's a narrative logic, uh, scare quotes, um, but it's really just an excuse to let you play some cards. And so, but I think when it comes down to it, you never feel like you're fighting an opponent in the same way that you do when you're playing like magic or even Hearthstone or something, right? You never feel like you're across because in most of these games, your opponent is not supposed to be as good as you, but after five of these opponents in a row with a health pool that's steadily declining, one of them's going to take you out. Or even if your health pool's regen, you know, you're still going to get a bad draw and get taken out. Yeah. I think, I think what you said about the cards is really key, right? Like, a good deck builder is one that will sort of teach you how to use the cards, right? And allow you to see the sort of like ways in which different types of cards can work together. Um, and the real pleasure for me, like in these games, maybe as opposed to RPG, I think it is, it is less about the story and more about, you know, this is just a kind of way to get you into like understanding the logic of, of, uh, of the cards um, and, and really getting into those logical systems. I think I would argue, like, of course, those systems are there in various role-playing game, role-playing games. But I think that they're less, I don't know, like, I think that they're less intricate, right? They're less, they're less, uh, I don't think you're supposed to think about them too much. Like, even if I'm thinking about, like, divinity, like, I think it does that, a, plays, plays with the elemental aspects of it a little bit. And maybe, uh maybe the souls games kind of but like i think in each of those games it's actually more about the story and more about the environment than it is about the actual logic of the mechanics i think that's i think that like distinction you made with like you're not supposed to be is really crucial right like with like these card games it's like that's what the game is those mechanics the game is those patterns those systemic interactions it is like counting numbers right if like you don't want to like get into numbers don't probably don't play one of these card games very much like because when it comes down to it you're like dealing with mathematical interactions right and obviously it's like there's you know some fun art um and there's a lot of other cool things but like it is fundamentally like showing itself off as like numbers yeah and that's the thing that weirds me out right is that like the whole point for me of rpgs is to be the icing over all those number mechanics so i don't have to think about them and worry about them and so it's interesting to me and and i'm not trying to like shit on deck builders like i'm just genuinely interested as a total outsider mostly to this and definitely total outsider to this as a video game i'm interested to hear more about what's compelling about taking the icing that RPGs put over all of those mechanical like numbers and things and scraping it off and getting down into the like the like spongy 
cake in the middle with all its icing gone. I just, I, I'm interested in that. I really like the spongy cake of, of carrot cake more than the icing. Yeah, I mean, I do too. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> well, that's good, you know, because then the cake metaphor isn't a value judgment. There, You know, you can like the cake, you can like the ice cream, you can like them together, you can like them separately. Yes, you know, and that's fully what of... I'm advocating for. Like, there like your go. cake and like your icing. But I'm curious for the cakers what you find compelling about the cake. <laughs> so I... I well, I, I want to talk about, in many ways, uh, the opposite of Deep Side Sky Derelicts uh, and, and think of it, it's probably my favorite deck building game that's come out, um, Signs of the Sojourner, which is a very narrative heavy deck builder, uh, but is a very good counterexample to the, uh, the thought that these deck builders are really just repurposing RPG mechanics uh, and putting cards in, in place of, of turn-based battle. Signs of the Sojourner um, is a game with no combat. Uh, it is based on conversation instead, um, and it would be a stretch to reduce those conversations to either solely competitive, cooperative, antagonistic, or anything. The, the conversations are actually quite complex and quite dynamic, um, and they, in many ways, do more than uh, even if you're trying to replace something like a dialogue tree with deck building mechanics. It, it's more than that. Um, it's much more than the sum of its parts. You play the game as um, the, uh, I think, daughter of a shopkeeper uh, in a rural town. And there is a caravan that goes between different towns of, you know, this country that you're in. Um, and you can join the caravan to find goods to stock in your shop and hopefully uh, save the rural town that you're in before it's depopulated because there is nothing going on there. Um, and the twist is that... Uh, when you engage in conversation with other people, you have cards that some of them have different abilities that allow you to, you know, draw to or, or things like that. But mostly what you're trying to do is match up a symbol to the next symbol that the other person may play. But depending on where you are in the world, people have different decks with different symbols they and and this manifests in dialogue it, they speak differently they might be more assertive um or or more withdrawn or more exuberant um and all of these symbols kind of have a vague correspondence to it and there's this really cool feature which captures some of the experience of, of travel and getting to know a, a wider range of people as you got in the world because with every conversation you have, you are required to exchange one of your very small deck. I think it might be 12 cards. Um, and you have to. You don't, you don't get a choice in that. Or you have to swap out one of your existing cards for a card that was just played in that conversation with hmm. someone else. That's cool. Yeah. So, And it, it pushes back against optimizing your deck in, in ways... Um, but it also means that the influence of the people that you talk to is manifested in the cards that you have in the game mechanics 
themselves. Uh, and you're and it manifests in conversation. You might return back to your town and to the people who support you there and your best friend and find yourself literally unable to talk to them because you've been out on the road and you've been learning these different styles of speech and the way that you talk doesn't match with the way that they talk. Wow. And it's it's just a spectacularly well done integration of it. And That's I think cool. it's a wonderful illustration of the possibility of taking all of these different bits that go along with deck building and cards, all of these different things from like swapping out cards and arranging your deck and getting influence and getting new stuff from new boosters, all of that comes together in these character moments. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. It's a great game and I can't recommend it enough. That's a really cool f philosophy of language to Mm -hmm. Like the uh, sort of the idea that you have a hand that you're drawing from that we exchange with each other as we kind of go throughout the world and learn how to interact with each other. That's really cool. That's some it, Wittgenstein shit right there. That's nice. Yeah, it's delightful. Yeah. <laughs> and you do it through use. You yeah. Know? Yeah. That's really neat. I mean, I think this suggests that there is a kind of like interesting spectrum where like you can have like a discrete number of elements and actually as long as you keep the elements maybe discrete enough, you can have that kind of like interesting narrative and character driven kind of uh, story that you can tell through these things. And on the other sort of end of that spectrum, you have, you know, this sort of equivalent of a kind of like chess, but with more variability in the pieces where it really is about like the pleasure of systems, the pleasure of pattern recognition, the pleasure of experimenting with elements in a really abstract way i kind of love that you know like i i'm somebody who likes abstractions i like programming i like variables i like mathematics and so there's a part of me that's just like this is like turning something like an equation to a kind of pleasurable mechanism right where there's yeah there's something pleasurable about the idea that like you're just doing something small but that's adding up over time to a big kind of effect you know and i see that that's part of i think the pleasure of programming it's a par part of the pleasure of i would say a lot of these games it's narrative there actually are narratives there right but it's not character driven right and i guess actually what's interesting about signs of sojourn which have, I've, I've literally downloaded and have not yet had a chance to play um you know i've heard so many good things about it but like that I think is really interesting because it does produce this kind of explicit coherent narrative. Whereas a lot of these other games, you're sort of crafting a narrative yourself as you go. Right. So like, for example, there's the suspense of what happens when you're like playing in a way that requires you to get a draw in the next three or four turns. Otherwise you're gone. Right. And like, you know, there's a good chance you'll get it, but you know, there's a chance you won't. Right. And so there's that suspense or what happens when you, you know, are building a deck towards a certain boss or something. If you know there's a boss that does a certain thing, but that building that deck that particularly like maybe makes you weak to some of the things you encounter on the way to the boss, right? So there's interesting stories you build up. And it, it, it's interesting to me that like, because we're seeing so many of these deck builders, and I'll say like, I don't think this is a bad thing at all. I think the reason we're seeing so many deck builders is because it is a very cost-effective uh way to build a game as an indie studio and i think it sort of has a very obvious pipeline uh because like the you know they're literally segments uh in the form of cards 
right? You can kind of go low budget on a lot of the art and still make it work. Uh, and what's more, and I think this is really helpful, is that there's a norm at this point with these games, a kind of like custom, that it's okay to go early access with them, right? And it's a solid early access. And in fact, you want to sell it early access because you need to like optimize and test out like and balance all of these cards uh, through the audience. Because probably if you're an indie studio, you don't have the money to spend on QA, right? And on testers anyway. So instead, let your testers pay you. <laughs> there you go. Um you know, uh, and not just with sweat and blood, um, as certain companies like Blizzard Activision apparently require <laughs> uh, from their QA. Uh, they split people the proper way. Yes, right? yes. The general <laughs> By intellect. making them pay to have it done to them. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. We, we need to be in a more advanced form of capitalism. But yeah, I, I think... I think it's interesting, and I'm curious. Like, so you were playing some Nowhere Profit, and I got some uh, Roger, and I think that's another one that's like, that's a game that I worked for me after a while, but took a little while to work for me because it's so it's like system on top of system in that game. Yeah, I I actually have not played a lot of it, and so you may be able to to speak to it better than I can. But like, there's definitely you know it's. I think people, it's sort of a Fallout kind of game, right? It's like this post-apocalyptic game where you're 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 basically uh the head you're kind of a prophet of this of this group of uh of of uh uh poor poor people walking through the desert um trying to find food and shelter and stuff like that and you run into different kinds of uh encounters with other bands uh and um you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting about it is that there is this kind of sense of like, you're constantly losing your life and your health and you're, it, it is, it really does dramatize um, the sort of lack of resources in kind of an interesting way. Um, but you're also, you also have sort of this branching kind of, kind of, you can take one uh, path um, around uh, through the desert, you can take another one Um I don't know if that was you were talking about in terms of like different types of systems, um, Christian. Yeah, I mean, there's this, there's a lot more systems with uh, the overworld, right? Like, and mm -hmm. you can navigate. There's branching paths, and there's also like you're in a caravan, so you have to keep you have to collect food and resources to keep going. And you can uh, be like an altruist, or like a yeah. you can play various different types of characters. I like the injury mechanics in it. Right. So like you have character cards and your characters can get injured and that carries over um, from battle to battle. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's interesting because of these lasting consequences. Um, and I do like that. I like that. Like it's still on that kind of mechanical level and there's a bit of a story element there, but it's mostly like a mechanical thing that makes things hard. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah, I've only played like a few runs yeah. of it, but I it, I'd be interesting to see like if anything carries on between the runs. Um, I'm trying to remember, I don't know if it's like that. Yeah, like I, that's another thing we haven't mentioned, but a lot of these games, 
Munster Train, Slay the Spire, like you do get unlocks as you play more and more runs. And even if you don't like beat the run, right, get through the final boss, Mm -hmm. you open up new cards or open up new characters or elements that complicate it further on, which offers a nice like way of being like, okay, we're going to give you this amount and then we're going to give you even more and then we're going to give you even more um, so that you're not necessarily overwhelmed right away. Munster Train in particular, like, I think there's like a thousand cards in that game or something. Um, well, and, and I appreciate that sense yeah. of progression, even though you are right, even though you have separate runs, yeah. there is some kind of continuity to it. Exactly. It feels like you're growing with the game as well. And the game's growing mm-hmm. for you. See mm-hmm. in magic, we call that working at your job. Like you play <laughs> magic, but you also do your job. So you make money. So you could go buy the new Innistrad cards that they're going to do. (laughs) Grinding IRL. (laughs) Hard pass. (laughs) Every once in a while, I think about getting back into magic. I think physical form or through through Arena. And I'm just like, I can't do it. I'm so scared. Ooh, gamers with classes Magic League. I I just have that memory. I just have that memory of like all of my allowance going to like this really shitty comic shop guy who I felt like just would like sniff my money when he was at home and be, you know, just like in some <laughs> just weird, full screen, you know, like ducking just, in your money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Off these teenagers. We all know how profitable a game shop. Game shop. He was rolling in it. I'm sure. Keep in mind that, that at the time I thought he was living the dream life. Um, <laughs> Whom yeah, amongst have, us like, didn't have that I wanted experience. to have a comic shop. Can you even imagine? Can you even imagine didn't having you? opened that up and like oh doing that now? It's such a we we're lucky to have like a local comic shop in State College, PA, uh, Comic Swap, with a good, really good crew of folks that work there. Um, it's a really kind of like nice open one. A lot the English department at Penn State orders a lot of their comics for the graphic novel courses and stuff through that shop, which is cool. That's cool. Um, but, you know, the guy that owns it, John, like, you know, he's pretty open about just how hard it is to just keep the doors open. And they, a lot of it is that Magic the Gathering, honestly, is like floating that store quite a bit. And they have weekly, they, you know, I mean, it's been hard in the pandemic because they usually have weekly booster pack tournaments and things like that, draft tournaments and all that. Can't do any of that, you know? Yeah. We've so. been keeping the local game store open through the pandemic, I think my son single-handedly has been, because he discovered uh, pre-painted miniatures. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> the things I just said were cost-prohibitive. <laughs> oh, man. We have, uh, we've definitely acquired a few of those <laughs> over the course of the last couple <laughs> Oh we God. even I even got him some paint. He's got some really fantastic oh, like wow tie-dye technicolor skeleton oh, warriors cool. with like pink helmets oh, and green beautiful. belts and yellow feet. It's absolutely one of the best he I can't get this seven year old kid to like draw or paint on paper for anything. But if I give him a little plastic skeleton man and I do the primer for him, oh my god, art. Wow. Art. I think that's entirely fair. That's fantastic. Art happens. That's beautiful. I don't I don't think there's a better way to end than that.
Good game. Good game. Good game.